Hello and welcome to the Dundry Gardening Podcast. In this episode, we'll be giving you an insight into our own gardens, talking tools with Matt and answering some more of your questions. I'm James, the shop manager, and with me on this episode are Chris, owner of Dundry Nurseries. Hello. Gemma, our seed production manager. Hello. And Matt, our podcast producer. Hello. We thought it would be nice on this episode to give you an insight into the sort of gardening we do at home. Uh, It's a bit of a busman's holiday for us all, but we are all very passionate gardeners. So I'll kick things off with my garden at home, uh, which you would probably call a backyard, but we could grandly call it a courtyard. So it's a terraced house with a um, a patio area that's only probably 20 by 20 foot. Um, Two sides are uh, evergreen hedging and uh, bushes. And then on the southwest facing fence, that's a little sun trap there. So we grow our tomatoes and cucumbers on that side. Um, and then for interest throughout the year, we have planted containers with, at the moment, we've got pansies and violas and daffodils and then tulips to come. And so we rip that out and then we replace it with annual bedding. And most years I go for reds and oranges because it's a nice hot sunny garden. And I feel that really adds to it. But our real passion and area that we spend loads of our time in the summer months is our allotment, which is about five minutes away from where we live. Um, just a short walk and the allotment is 20 foot by 45 foot um, it's split into beds so the last thing I wanted when we took the allotment on was this vast expanse of soil which might at some point become slightly um, overbearing so the plot is split into eight beds which are nine foot wide by four foot and there's a path up the middle and then wood chip paths off of that and so three quarters of the allotment we turn to growing vegetables so the usual things potatoes leeks and parsnips carrots sweet corn and then the other remaining quarter of the allotment is put down to a grass area there's flower beds for attracting uh, wildlife and pollinators then we've got an area with fruit so strawberries raspberries and rhubarb and then the last little area is where we grow our pumpkins and squash. And the best thing about the allotment that I've discovered is no dig. And this has been a real godsend for time um, and effort as well. So basically, after the first year of having the allotment and rotivating and doing it the usual way, I found that the soil was so hard, like clay and concrete, that I decided no dig was the way to go. So I now just cover the beds with compost, either shop-bought or homemade compost, a mixture of both. Then you just plant directly into that and really cuts down on weeding time um, and it really helps keep the allotment tidy. Um, and so Gemma, you do no-dig as well, but in your garden it's a new-build garden um, and I know that your no-dig experience is with ornamental plants. Yes, that's right. Um, I've got the classic new-build problem of... Um, builder's rubble soil um so it's full of breeze blocks half bricks stones and the rest of it is pretty much clay um and then on top of that it's a very thin layer of topsoil on which um some turf has been uh, roughly put down and that is the entirety of my garden besides the patio um so it's the soil is is not great um so what I've done is I've started doing no dig as a uh, remedy to this and I as you said man I'm going to do um, more ornamentals um so I'm I plan to establish trees I've done the uh, I've done one bed already where I've established um some shrubs that I've grown in pots for quite some time as well as herbaceous and 
to fill the gaps with some annual seeds and it's worked really well the first bed that I've I put in last year um covers goes along the back fence uh, about six meters long and all summer last year I only had to weed it three or four times and each time it only took me about 20 minutes so I laid down the cardboard and the compost on top of turf and quite a few pernicious weeds under there I didn't do much weeding to start off with um it is recommended that you do but I've had nasty things under there like bindweed that his I have noticed have been significantly weakened um with the compost and the cardboard on top and the cardboard's been eaten by the worms as far as I've I can see when I've had a little poke around see what's in there and I've noticed a great deal of um a great deal more uh soil life worms and such as well so it's it looks like it's really improved the environment and we're going to talk about um more in depthly about no dig um further down the line with our episodes um, but also in your garden, you have, are interested in creating winter interest, isn't that right? Yeah, so I'm very interested in making the garden look something in the in the in the colder, the darker months. Um, gives me something to look at while I'm washing up out the kitchen window. Very good. Um, so yes, yeah, so things that have got interesting bark, um, trees and shrubs with um, nice, colourful barks. Um, flowers that bloom in winter or very early in the year um scent as well there's quite a few um lovely scented winter flowers like daphne's and the the winter honeysuckle um that i want to incorporate um and also i've already planted quite a few early spring bulbs which are starting to poke their heads through and looking quite nice very nice um and so chris you're garden is on the site here um, it's quite well established now but when you moved here uh, many years ago it was a new build so what have you discovered over the years of gardening on the site here on your plot yeah I ended up with um, an instruction that was that I ought to be building a, a house on the site we were pushed for space I ended up building the house on what previously had been the car park the car park was put together in the 50s and actually was put together using clinker from the local gasworks. So when I first started to look for a garden, I found that there was a need to excavate almost to a depth of two feet across the entire area. And in order to make some sense of that ground, it became a ritual that on returning to the house each evening, I would sieve the garden for half an hour. I came in from work and I would just be out there sieving. And uh, it was very satisfying. I took away barrow loads of the stuff. Um, but to this day, I've lived in the house now 32 years, and to this day I could still deliver you to patches of ground that are deep in clinker. Um, and I think as a gardener, probably I'm an adventurer, so I, I get bored with stuff and I'll see something that's different, and I've moved a lot of things and I've destroyed a lot of things, and, and I don't have a, a favourite plant necessarily. Um, I've got quite a rich diversity. The, the site has changed a lot. I think the joy of, of gardening really is that uh, is, is the playing, the adventure. Um, I, I told myself at a very young age that it was best treated as a game, that when you think you've mastered nature, you, you probably haven't. So it's a good conditioning that you actually say, I know sometimes I will lose. Um, and I'm quite comfortable with the losing. So I've, I've played lots of games, moved lots of plants. I said about clinker, I, I planted a holly 20 years ago and, and my wife said within a year that it was dead and I decided that it wasn't and I moved it. Um, and it wasn't looking very happy a year on from that. So I, I dug another hole and sieved to the hole and repositioned it. And after four attempts, I found a space where the holly will actually grow. 
when you, as a gardener, look at the range of plant material that's available and consider that in every family there will be hundreds of varieties and there should be joy in the constant exploration. And that's the lovely part about being involved in our industry that all the time we are seeing new plants. So I think of the things in the garden that I would cite as being my best. I think probably the best thing currently is that we've we've built a raised bed immediately outside the back door and we grow salad stuff in that. So we're able to go and snatch a handful of lettuce, or at the moment, there's a lot of spinach in it. Um, but tomatoes, the access to a tomato right outside the kitchen door, I like that. So that's that's the playground, the heart of my playground. Big garden, lots of plants that are constantly changing or on the move. And then this delightful um, raised bed, which is our vegetable plot. And so whether you're gardening on an allotment or at home and you're growing ornamentals or vegetables, uh, you can't do any of these things without a basic selection of tools. So Matt, what are your thoughts on some of the tools that we should be looking for when gardening? My first recommendation is a tool that I don't think many people would consider to be a tool, to be honest, but um, it's the traditional pair of gardening gloves that I will always take out with me when I'm gardening. They obviously protect you from cuts and bruises, but they also offer valuable extra grip of the tools that you're using. So, I mean, when you're looking for a good pair, it's best to find something that's water resistant or cut resistant. And of course, they need to be breathable as well, because, um, you know, when you're in them for a long time, it's really annoying when they get damp on the inside and then they begin to slip off anyway. Um, In terms of the brand that you're looking for, I personally buy the cheaper ones. I feel that a good cheaper pair is actually going to be better for you in the long run and also probably more cost effective. So on to the big tools, the the ones that are the basics, I think, that should be in everyone's garden shed. Um, obviously, these all depend on what you're trying to do in your garden. But generally speaking, having all these tools covers you on most jobs. So the starter is the digging spade for your planting and the edging of your borders. And also, of course, your digging fork for the aeration of soil, um, for digging up and moving shrubs and plants, and of course, for turning soil. You've got the lawn rake, or known as the spring rake, for the clearing of leaves and moss and light tidying up duties. And of course you've got the garden rake, which is essential for levelling and for breaking up soil, and also creating a nice tilth to sow your seeds in. Um, For those of you who don't know what a tilth is, Gemma, would you be able to explain? Yes, so the tilth is basically a term used to uh, refer to to how broken up the soil is. Um, A finer tilth um, is quite often something you see on seed packets, so um, to rake the soil to a fine tilth before sowing. It just refers to um, raking over the soil again and again, so the soil is nice and fine um, things like carrots really appreciate um, a finer tilth um, and all seeds have a finite energy resource within them so given the right environment it stops them getting exhausted before they germinate to the surface fabulous there's also the dutch hoe which is probably the most commonly known one um, best used on a hot day for taking the tops off of weeds and then of course letting them dry out and then there's the draw hoe as well for creating your trenches for planting Now, all of these tools require a lot of physical effort to use. And as a result, that puts a lot of strain on the tool and also the gardener, of course, unless you're choosing to use no dig or something like that. So something to consider when purchasing these is making sure that they're made from a strong material. Um, I mean, I recommend ash as it's a strong material and also it's a lot lighter than steel, for example. It also enables a better balanced tool, which in the long run is much more comfortable to use. The heads should really be made of carbon. Um, again, it's it's a bit lighter than the steel and it's also just as strong. Another thing to look out for on the digging fork and digging spade is that there's a lip on the head of the spade and the digging fork. Uh, and that basically stops you from ruining your shoes. 
Um, so a recommendation is avoid plastics, avoid heavy steel, and if you can, try before you buy in the garden centre to make sure that they feel comfortable to use. Okay, so we've covered the basic larger tools. What about hand tools, Matt? Yep, so you've got the hand trowel and the hand fork, which you will use for potting and bowl planting and sort of lighter groundwork. Um, I don't think the quality really matters too much here, personally. I think you can you can afford to spend, you know, less on them they don't have to stand up to so much strain and as a result the material choice doesn't matter quite so much you also have pruning shears loppers and secateurs which are essential for maintenance of your shrubs perennials and hedges uh, there's two different types of blade that i know of and that's anvil and bypass um, and i'll pass this over to chris maybe he'd be able to explain to us what those are yeah when you buy um, secateurs you'll notice that they've either got blades that slide past one another as with a pair of scissors um, or they've got a flat surface. So the anvil secateur is the secateur that has a blade that cuts onto a surface, so rather as a chopping board might. Um, if you were preparing something in the kitchen, you had a chopping board, one blade strikes onto a flat surface. That particular type of secateur is most effectively used on heavier work. So if you've got some fairly lumpy bits of timber to get out, if you're using loppers, I, I rate an anvil every time. Um, if you are pruning, to be honest, I use an anvil lopper personally for most pruning work. Um, but it's, it's inclined if you're not careful to, to crush your stem. So, so you need to know your blade is sharp. But that's the difference. It's very much a chopping action against the anvil, which can result in a crushing unless you've got a sharp blade. The other is a scissor action and is, is much more accurate for, for delicate pruning if you're trying to prune accurately to buds it's easier to do with that scissor action so that's really the difference um heavy pruning anvil more selective pruning blades that roll past each other and matt is there anything else we should consider buying as a garden essential alongside these tools yeah last but not least of course you've got your watering can um, or hose pipe which are just as essential as the rest of the tools because of course you need to keep those plants alive there's also a wheelbarrow or a truck, which is useful for moving your crops around your garden or, of course, clearing the waste. And I would recommend actually a caddy for carrying these tools when you're moving around the garden. It makes it a lot easier to work. So I've spoken about some of the basic tools that I think should be in everyone's garden shed. Now I want to sort of open this up to everybody else. What are your favourite tools? James, let's start with you. Well, my favourite tool is the Japanese Hori Hori which is a fantastic um, sort of bladed tool, a bit like a long, thin trowel. So the blade is about seven or eight inches long. It has a wooden handle. Um, it has marker lines on it for planting depths. Um, you can use it like a trowel or a dibber. And then the blades on each side, one blade is a cutting blade like a knife and the other blade is serrated. So you can hack things and you can saw things and you can dig things. And it's a great tool. Um, they're pretty pricey. They start around 20 to 30 pounds going upwards, you know, even to a hundred pounds. Um, but they are really a good tool. And that's one of my favorites. Um, what about you then, Gemma? What's your favorite? Well, mine's one that we haven't mentioned. Um, it's the humble scoop, um, which is used for compost. It's easier and faster to fill pots. It also keeps your hands cleaner and you can use it for mixing fertilizers into the compost and grit as well. Okay. And Chris, yours? Um, without doubt, the Chillington hoe. So the Chillington hoe is a, is a mattock. 
it's, if you like, an enlarged Dutch hoe. So it's a broad-bladed hoe. Um, the blade, when I say is broad, can be six to eight inches wide and up to ten inches deep. And it's it's an all-purpose tool. So one can cultivate ground with it, one can trench with it, one can bank up soil as one might around potatoes. It's a great um, weeding device. So and, and it's always well balanced. So it's a long a long handle tool, very well balanced. There used to be a joke on the site that eventually I would be buried with mine. I used to carry it all the time, and in recent days have bought another one. Great tool, Chillington Hope. And Matt, yours? What do you like to use? My favourite tool is my hedge shears. Uh, I cut quite a lot of box hedging, and I wouldn't touch it with my battery-powered hedge trimmer. I would always use the manual hand ones. Uh, just for the more detailed side of them. Um, and yeah, that's my favourite. Okay, and now it's time for some of your questions. So first up, Scott Wilson has been in touch on Facebook and he asks, what's an effective way to deal with mare's tail? So mare's tail or horse tail, as it's also known, is a very deep-rooted perennial weed um, with roots that can go up to two metres deep. It spreads very quickly. Um, it forms a dense carpet of green sort of fern-like foliage and it can be very, very difficult to eradicate. So there's two ways you can try and do this, um, either by non-chemical or by chemical. So non-chemical is involving really pulling out by hand as the new shoots emerge. Um, shallow weeding using a trowel or fork really doesn't help the problem at all. In fact, it can make it worse because you end up with small bits breaking off, which will form rhizomes and regrow. Um, the chemical treatments, there's a relatively new chemical on the market made by Neodorf, who are a German company, um, and that is their weed killer concentrate. It's glyphosate free um, and contains geranium acid, and that works very well. And we stock that actually on a recommendation of a landscape gardener that uses us. Um, you can also try the tough weed killers, which contain glyphosate, um, to try to help with the removal of uh, the mare's tail. And these include the Resolver Tree Stump Killer or Roundup uh, Tree Stump Killer. All treatments, either chemical or non-chemical, are going to take you several years of hard graft, I'm afraid. There is no easy fix for mare's tail. It's, um, excuse my interruption, but I said earlier about this being a game, and uh, I was always delighted by, by mare's tail. There's mare's tail all over the place on the site. And, and it's testament to its capability that it is from the Carboniferous era. So it's actually back from the time of dinosaurs. And as you say, you touch it once and you shatter the thing and it'll root all over the place. It's It's been around a long time and probably will be around a long time after we've gone. Probably. The game continues. And our next question is from Dawn Stiles, who's also been in touch uh, via Facebook. And she says, uh, we are just about to erect a greenhouse in our back garden and would like to know what to grow in it other than the usual tomatoes, cucumbers and peppers. So Gemma, any thoughts? Well, there's a great deal you can do with a greenhouse. The extra warmth affords you to be able to grow things that appreciate a warmer climate like aubergines um also um it's warmer later in the year so chilies will carry on fruiting and ripening in the greenhouse to christmas and past christmas sometimes um you could go a bit more exotic and grow melons um you can lengthen the season by growing winter salads as well um or you could take a leaf out of the national trust's book um if you don't mind one plant taking over the entire greenhouse like a triffid um you could go for the current trend which is loofahs a lot of people are growing those this year um the national trust i mentioned is because um they are growing a lot of these um, and on any of their sites that grow vegetables um, in greenhouses as 
they are trying to reduce their plastic use in particularly in their kitchens so to reduce the use of sponges they're growing loofers to use as pot scourers instead interesting that is an interesting one um and just finally a question we get asked a lot in the shop at this time of year um and which ties into the greenhouse question is starting potatoes loads of people ask us what potatoes can they start for an earlier crop in a greenhouse so chris what sort of varieties are good for that if you anything that's an early will do but if you if you look at the list that's been kicking around for 20 years i can tell you that that jeffrey hamilton woodall would tell you swift swift and rocket are both very quick um, I'm not overly impressed with the flavour, but if you want a fast new potato and you want it in a hurry, then those varieties are probably faster than any other. Um, the talk of, of potato, several people have said about the idea of growing potatoes in a greenhouse. And Gemma alluded to the fact that actually it's giving you a temperature advantage. The potato is actually a, a, a thing that's better um, raised outside. And so what you'll do is accelerate the growing process. You'll get a good start if you do them in under glass, but be mindful of the fact that on hot days you're actually not doing the plants a flavour. You want to slow the growth. Uh, potato is not a is not a root; it's a shoot. So grow them in pots. This business of layering in pots, put them in a shallow depth of compost in the bottom of a pot. Keep topping up, and as the shoot reappears, cover it, and up will come another shoot and cover it. And at every interval, there'll be the formation of more potatoes. But if the weather is hot and you've tried your luck in the glass, make sure you're ventilating. You've got to keep air movement. It will accelerate the journey, but you don't want it to be rampant. Okay, thanks for that, Chris. And now to finish as ever, let's throw over to Matt for Matt's stats. Yes. Okay, this week I have a very interesting statistic to start us off. Chris, how many pencils do you think the average size tree could provide? I'm going to say about 20,000. Not even close, I'm afraid. No, it's it's a massive number, in fact. It's 170,100 pencils from the average-sized tree. You can burn off 87 Mars bars a year by doing some light gardening for one hour per week. That's raking and weeding, etc. Wow, I need to start eating some more Mars bars. Absolutely, the facts tell you you should. What? <laughs> I just really want Are we to talking about the facts as issued by the sweet industry? <laughs> oh dear. Right. What percentage of plant life do you think can be found in the ocean, James? Um, I reckon we're looking at around 85%. That's a good guess. Gemma, what do you reckon? I think it is quite a big percentage, given how much of the planet is covered by water. I'm going to go 75%. Okay. Chris? I'm going to go at 81.5%. That's a very interesting number, James. In fact, you were correct with 85%. If I'd seen the piece of paper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now this one I can't quite believe, to be honest. Uh, Well, I can believe it's fast growing, but not by this much. Bamboo is the fastest growing woody plant in the world. It can grow 35 inches in a single day. In a day? One day, 35 inches. I don't know what that is in centimetres, but it's a lot. <laughs> well, Matt, there's always some fascinating stats there. That's all for this episode. So thanks to Chris, Gemma and Matt. And on the next episode, we'll be talking to Liz Fallon from the Cotswold Posy Patch about growing flowers for cutting, giving you some seasonal tips and advice and answering more of your questions. You can listen to us through our Facebook page on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and on our website. If you enjoy our podcast, then please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find our episodes. We hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye for now.